The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. There's often a joke I tell to try and frame a problem in our political economy, which is, ready, fire, aim, which is a criticism of how a politician or someone in business has done something in which they know they wanted to achieve it, but they hadn't done the measurement beforehand, and then they pull the trigger and it's a mess. So to this week on When the Facts Change, I want to talk about our environmental spending, how we target things in the environment as a government, how we set our policies so that we avoid ready, fire, aim. This week on When the Facts Change, I talk to Simon Upton, who is the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, and he's done a really useful report into how the government spends money, organises itself, and tries to achieve things in the environment. Because we try to do a lot, maybe we should do a lot more, and unfortunately, we don't actually measure very well a lot of the spending that we do in the environment and the effects of that spending. In theory, we want to get good value for money, but we also want to achieve what we want as a society. Sometimes it's useful when you're thinking about these problems of ready, fire, aim to go back to first principles. And for me, that means looking at how we measure our activity as an economy and as a government. And that actually is using a lot of the techniques we use in business. This goes back to the Public Finance Act of 1989. I want to reinforce to everyone, this is so important in terms of how our government operates and what our politicians do, and more importantly, what they don't do, and how when we tell them to do something, like achieve reduction in emissions or improve housing affordability, often it's not achieved because of that Public Finance Act framing and the way it's operated by the bureaucrats and the measurers within the government, and in particular, Treasury. So let's think about environmental spending and how it translates into the Public Finance Act and why we're not necessarily getting what we want. Let's take the example of building a motorway, something we've been pretty good at over the years and that we do take big decisions on. Let's say it's going to cost $20 billion to build a motorway over a decade. That's a transmission galley-sized motorway. And Treasury has to think about, is it good value to money to spend that $200 million a year over those 10 years to create an asset that's worth $2 billion? Well, let's start first with the accounts. Remember, we have profit and loss accounts, which mean how much am I spending this year, what am I getting back in revenue, and what is the surplus I have in the year. And then I have my investment accounts, if you like. So when I create an asset, what do I have at the end of the year in assets and at the end of the year in liabilities, and what is my equity? And then we've got some cash accounts. For many decades, our government was run essentially on a set of cash accounts. How much came in every year, how much went out every year. But the Public Finance Act changed that, for the better, I think, but it needs to extend further into reporting on the intangibles around our environment. 
because that motorway, which costs $2 billion, and which will have benefits in the form of faster time to get to work, more productivity, maybe safer uh, motoring, actually also has some intangible costs which we should be taking into account, particularly when we build it. Because that motorway is made of concrete and steel mostly and an awful lot of shifting of dirt, all of which embed emissions into the motorway itself. So before the motorway is even being used, it's produced enormous amounts of emissions. Secondly, it might encourage more people to drive faster to more places and generate more emissions from their cars. It turns out when you put your foot down and go over 100 k's, you actually generate a lot more emissions than if you're driving at 40 or 50 k's. So that's important too, understanding the emissions in the long run. And then what are our liabilities after the motorway's been completed and when it's in operation? Because if we build this motorway now for $2 billion, it's still going to be around in 2100 when the bills will come in from the rest of the world for our carbon liabilities. All those carbon emissions from that motorway will have to be paid for. So we need to work out how big the emissions will be, how much... Other policies reduce the emissions. What the costs of those emissions will be. For example, we now have prices around the world for carbon credits in tons of emissions. In New Zealand, it's getting close to $100 a ton. And around the world, it's pretty clear in 20 or 30 years' time, these emissions are going to cost us hundreds of dollars per ton, which we'll have to pay as a government and as a society. So that's the motorway. And then there's other policies that we bring in that have intangible effects that we need to somehow introduce into our Public Finance Act way of looking at the world. Let's say, for example, I'm a very uh, happy and aggressive teenage driver who likes to go on the motorway, but I'm also a dairy farmer, and I like to do donuts in a very loud... (laughs) loud, smelly car. I drive into a park. I do my donuts. It's very exciting. I feel good. I'm popular. There's some wonderful smells of burning rubber, but there are costs which I might not bear. For example, cleaning the rubber off the road when I zip off the road and wreck the garden. And of course, the emissions that I'm producing, which obviously I'm not paying for, at least initially. What about those externalities, those costs beyond me that I have to pay for and that are going into the rest of society or into the future? How are they being paid for? Should actually there be a policy, a big old toll gate at the start of the park in which me as a donut driving teenager have to tap my card to say, okay, I'm going to do some donuts and the externalities are being priced and it's going to cost me $200 to do the donuts. Maybe I won't do the donuts. So actually, you can use pricing of these things to reduce the damage from the activity. So that's the donuts. But let's think about the cows. I've got the cows that burp and they wee. The burping of the methane will go into the atmosphere and mix with all the methane from the Russian oil and gas fields or the tundra that's drying out in Russia. How do we price that? Because it's not just happening this year in this financial year, it's happening for many years to come. And the effects of it will change over time because we know that methane is a short-living gas. It has a very heating impact in the first few years, but then dribbles off over time. How is Treasury, how is the farmer 
taking that into account when they make their decisions about how many cows they've got or whether or not they should put bags on their bums to stop the, the wee going into the, into the grass. And it's not just for climate emissions too, of course. The wee includes all sorts of uh, nitrates, which sometimes go down through into the water table and then into our drinking supplies, but that can take 20, 30 years. So when we make these decisions, we know we're not just making them for this year under the Public Finance Act, they're for a long time. And we need to make sure the Treasury is understanding what they call the actuarial effects, the long-term costs and benefits, not just to the government, but the wider society, particularly if they've got a price on them, which involves a sale. This week on When the Facts Change, we're going to talk with Simon Upton about how we do that measurement of our environmental spending and its effects. Turns out it's not very good. Apart from the climate, we're getting pretty good now at understanding our emissions, but when we get to water quality, air quality, we've got some real improvements to make because the facts are changing all the time and we need to understand what they are. This week on When the Facts Change, we're working out how environmental facts are changing, how we should measure it and what's actually going on. Well, welcome to uh, When the Facts Change, Simon Upton, who is the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment. Simon, great to be here in the, um, the PCE's offices. Tell me about this big new report you've put out, which has been quite popular. Well, I like the fact that uh, this segment's called When the Facts Change, because what I've been saying for a while as Parliamentary Commissioner, I just like some facts, actually. Uh, <laughs> then we could change them. Um, there's a serious... Uh, problem at the whole of New Zealand's uh, environmental management system, and that is just the quality of information. Uh, that afflicts what we know about what's happening in the environment, um, but it also afflicts the decisions that governments take, because if they haven't got good quality information, how do they know they're tackling the right problem or tackling it in the right way? How do they know what they're doing is even being effective? And what I'm trying to do is to join together some fragmented bits of the government system so we can actually make some progress. We need good quality information about what's happening in the environment. We'll never know everything. We need to do research to find out more. So we need to make sure we're researching things which we should be researching. And then the results of that monitoring information need to be used by the government when it comes to prioritising things when it comes to making decisions, rather than just saying, look, we're spending some money, we're doing something. Uh, we've got to get beyond that. So where were the biggest gaps? Well, I'll tell you where the gaps are, are, are least, and it might be a better way of answering the question, and that's in climate. The reason why we've got better information on climate and emissions is because we signed an international treaty which said you have to report on a particular basis. And we've been doing that for 30 years. So we've actually got, I think, pretty good information about all aspects of climate. And it means that when the government decided it was finally going to set up a system for budgets and trying to make progress by 2050, it had a very good information base to work from. So it is actually possible in the case of climate to say what is happening in terms of the environment, what is happening in terms of emissions, then use that evidence to make your climate budgets. 
I think it's just a little embarrassing that we have the best information because we signed a treaty which required us to report. And so it's really all the rest that we need to catch up on. And all I can say is that uh, it's patchy, it's fragmented. Uh, it's not as though there is no information, there's tons of information, but it's been gathered uh, in different places in different ways. There isn't a consistency uh, with how it's pulled together and there's things that we know nothing about. I'll give you a, one example from work that I've done. Every report I do, by the way, I discover that there isn't enough information to really make good recommendations. But I did a report on chemicals in the environment. What do we know about the fate of chemicals reaching the environment. Now, again, we've got lots of rules and regulations. There's all sorts of people who are telling you how many parts per million uh, you're allowed to put into a pipe that's going into the river or whatever, or how many parts per billion can be in stuff going into the atmosphere. But we don't actually know what's happening out there in the environment. Now, it might just be that more is reaching the environment than you think, or it might be that the science changes, and then you find, oh, oh, we can't put so much up there. But, uh, well, what's the problem out there? Well, we don't know. And when it came to looking at a whole a series of classes of chemicals, which are widely used and regulated in New Zealand, there's no monitoring of what the receiving environment is getting. So do we know that those rules are working? So that's just one example, and, and there are many like it. So it needs a thoroughgoing uh, attempt to sort out the quality of our monitoring and then use that to inform our decision making. It's not rocket science. We just need to tidy it up rather comprehensively. How do you think this data could be used to make better decisions? For example, the best data we have is on climate. You could argue we haven't made the best decisions. Ah, that's a really important point. Just because you have information, it does not mean that you will uh, use it well. And I'm, I absolutely accept that. I mean, it's very easy for someone like me to sit here and say, we need better quality information. If we've got better quality information, we'll get better decisions. Uh-uh, it doesn't work like that. People can ignore good quality information and do it anyhow. Look at Trump. However, and I see this almost in a small c constitutional sense, I think we should make it harder for decision makers to take bad decisions. And good information, transparently available, accessible, is some check on bad decision-making and bad government. So uh, I see it as being a necessary foundation and framework to support our democracy. But of course, at the end of the day, those we elect will end up taking the decisions they take. I'm old enough to be a fan of Hogan's Heroes, one of my favourite characters. What's, was um, Sergeant Schultz? I said, nastic, nastic. Is that perhaps one of the reasons we haven't done the better numbers? Because actually, for some people, they'd rather not know. Look, it might be in some cases, but to be honest with you, I've always been one of those people who's thought that if you've got an inexplicable event, the cock-up theory is better than the conspiracy theory. I, 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 I really, I don't think we need to go there. Put it this way, if you've got better quality information, it's going to be harder uh, for, for people to, to, to make bad decisions and harder to sustain conspiracies as well. So, no, I, 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 I look, the report that I've published, and this isn't a really important point to make, the audience for it is actually members of parliament, select committees. 
and in particular backbenchers. We have a system where governments have uh, the, the numbers, if they've got the numbers in the House, governments can spend large amounts of money and do all sorts of things. Backbenchers who are not in the executive are supposed to hold them to account. Now we have a uh, attention in our system, on, as do all Westminster countries, whereas half the people in the back bench are hoping to be in the cabinet next week if they can get there. So you don't want to rock the boat so much. However, uh, I'm still hopeful that we can persuade select committees to do a better job of holding people to account when it comes to the environment. Up until now, though, I think it's absolutely fair to say that they haven't had the information to really ask the questions. And so the, the, my, my report is very much designed for members of parliament because if we can get information uh, to them in a form they can make sense of, then they can do a better job of scrutinising uh, government actions. You mentioned our signing up to a global treaty was the reason for the climate data being better. Is there another institutional way that sort of forces uh, uh, government to um, report better? I well, mean, we, 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 for example, have the Public Finance Act, which changed the way that uh, government reports on itself yes. and in a structural way changed the way government operated. Is there, an, is there a, a series of institutional yes. legislative ways you could do it so that it sort of, it's a set and forget? Yes, yes, yes there are, and that's exactly what I'm recommending, that uh, the government should uh, barcode expenditure, and effectively, and relate uh, all expenditure that relates to the environment to one of the five big environmental outcomes that effectively the State of the Environment Act um, reports against. You know, we, we collect information about water, about biodiversity, about waste and pollution, climate, so on and so forth. So basically, um, we, the government needs to spell out what its outcomes are in respect of each of these. So what are your outcomes in the sort of three to ten year period? Four each of those areas. So you say, you put yourself, and any government should do this, you, know, you put yourself on the line, you say, this is what we are seeking to achieve. And we will see that all the expenditure across government, all the expenditure across government, which relates to that is effectively barcoded, so you can quickly pull it all together. But what you want to do is put the select committee in a position where it can say, right, this year, we're going to look at biodiversity. We'd like to see everything you're spending on biodiversity. Now, it's not just done by DOC. This is the point. You've got the Defence Department spending money. You've got Lynn spending money. Uh, you, you've got a wide range of agencies. Pull all that together and then say, OK, well, look, what's the quantum? It adds up to this. Uh, where are the priorities within it? And what do we know about the effectiveness? And, and you can start focusing on the outcome rather than the purchase of the output. And that's where our public finance system is currently focused. It's focused on the purchase of outputs. So Parliament said you can spend $23.7 million on this output, which is you know, the purchase of, of pest control services or something. But you're looking always at the money and the output, the delivery. And so that, you know, you could say, well, well how, how much did you spend there? Well, we spent it on exterminating goats and, and the money got spent on, you know, the colours who went out there and the support gear and all the rest of it. And what was the effectiveness? Well, we don't tend to monitor that, but we need to get the focus away from those outputs to say, look, biodiversity, we're trying to preserve our indigenous biodiversity. It's under attack from all sorts of quarters. So what are the outcomes specifically that you're after? 
and what money is being put towards them and what's the effectiveness? Are you actually making progress? Do we need to spend more? Are we doing the wrong things? I mean, that is where focus should be. So it is a question of moving the public finance system up a notch to focusing on the outcomes as well as the outputs, to use the jargon. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. One of the issues with environmental spending is that you could spend some money on something this year yeah. and it has an effect many, many years down the track, but also an effect a long way away from where you spent it. And that connection, uh, those you know, unpriced externalities, if you like, are a long way away, often in time, but also in space. So how do you, you know, you connect your barcodes up there? You know, you, you're absolutely right. I, I think the environment is is probably the hardest area of public expenditure, you know, because if you try to, to target road deaths and things, I mean, even there, that's a bit slow, but you can say, right, there's a program to sort out these problem spots, there's a problem to, you know, put median barriers in, track the numbers, you know, after a few years you'll get results. Something like, like biodiversity, um, uh, you're talking about uh, decades uh, in some cases and sustained effort. Uh, so I don't, I don't say that this is easy stuff and I don't think uh, some magic uh, will happen in a select committee where suddenly we will be able to assess this. But you need always, I think, when you've got, you've got these long-term uh, issues, you have to hang in there. You have to keep collecting data over time, it will eventually start to tell you a story. And, and this is one of the, the, the tragedies, really, of what we've got to, is that whereas with climate, we have collected data in the same way over three decades now, 
Uh, we've got, and, we've, and if you go back uh, from a physical science point of view, you've got some time series that go back way, way, way uh, further. Um, we can see trends. We really can uh, see stuff happening in time. What's happened in so many other areas of the environment is that we haven't got that time series data. I'm going to give you a, a, another gap and an interesting one. Um, land cover. Uh, we've been doing since, um, I think, the early 2000s, um, land cover surveys. And, and this is from space. Uh, and they say, you know, what's the land cover? So it could be trees or it could be grass or urban or whatever. Um, and there isn't even a, an agreement to keep that going on a permanent basis. Every few years, MFE puts the hat around and says, could other agencies help us, please? We'd like to do the, the latest edition. Now, this is an economy which relies on the land, but we don't even have an sort of institutionalized process, but at least they've been doing it. But you would think even more to the point, we'd know what's happening to land use. It's, an, it's a land-based economy, farming, forestry, horticulture, urban activities. You need to know how it's changing, surely. There is no uh, database uh, which is maintained on a regular, you know, real-time basis. And yet there's satellites and things flying over the country all the time. Now, it just amazes me that we've never really done that. There's, again, there's lots of bits of information, but we don't have the capacity to pull it together. So I think some of this is, is coming up to speed with the, the digital and remote sensing revolutions and modelling revolutions that we've had and bringing all of that to bear as well. It's not just going up there with a, a dipstick, so to speak, into the environment. Just, uh, just to finally look at the potential infrastructure for data mining, in a way. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of talk in the previous national-led government about uh, social investment and creating an integrated data uh, infrastructure, which would allow that sort of um, finely grained analysis of you know things going in and things going out and then interventions hopefully in a very effective way uh, in a very focused way do you think something like this could be created or integrated with your integrated data infrastructure for government and get over some of the um, uh, silo problems that there seem to have yes. been with the data issues around uh, social investment. I'm sure there are huge opportunities to do that. Uh, I'm not a data expert, but one of the things which is clear to me, and it's one of the failings of the whole resource management system that we put in place um, 30 years ago now, is that we devolved uh, a large amount of responsibility uh, which included the gathering of information and the curation of data. And so the, actually the nerve centre of a lot of environmental um, reporting in New Zealand are regional councils, not central government. And I mean, these, there are some seriously good people at regional council level. I take my hat off to them. They don't have a lot of resources. Ratepayers don't want to fund this stuff. They keep, they, I keep getting that message. Uh, but they battled on and they collect a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's monitoring the state of the environment. Sometimes it's monitoring consents and what you can put into the environment. They have no national leadership or guidance, really. Uh, I mean, there are some from the Ministry for the Environment, and it's, it's done what it can, but the government's never prioritised that. The first recommendation in my report is that not only does that have to be pulled together, and it, 
but it has to be given national leadership and guidance. And I've suggested that should probably be with the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, I think that the Ministry of the Environment it's a policy advisor. It has to interpret information. It has to advise governments on policies. But when it comes to the, the, the really hard business of building data collection systems, building monitoring systems, I think you need a technically literate uh, agency. And, and that's what the EPA should be. Uh, and it, it is, once again, it's got some funny roles and it's got all sorts of gaps. But I think we need to start to build that capacity at the centre. Um, so you need to know certain things are being collected in the same way, that you're using the same methodology, that you, that you are able to compare apples with apples, not apples with tamarillos. And just um, this final issue of data ownership. We created a bunch of uh, Crown agencies, some of them turned into state-owned enterprises, where they saw data collection as an opportunity to create IP that could be sold. Uh, and, you know, uh, Neewer and various other places often sell their data to private organisations. Is there any requirement or issue that needs to be ironed out around data ownership so that it remains public and accessible? I haven't investigated that issue. Um, if it's publicly funded, the collection of the information, it should be publicly available. Now, I think what the CRIs would say is, well, yeah, it is publicly available. Where we add value to it uh, and sell it to people who are also wanting to make money out of it, then that's another matter. Now, that's always going to be a boundary that you have to, to, to police. Uh, I haven't, haven't looked at that point, but I'm, I'm uh, having said that regional councils are at the centre, the CRIs are... The, uh, the other really important um, foundation here, they represent um, really the, a, a crucial element of our national um, uh, data, our national scientific understanding of the, of the country we're living in. Um, they, the NIWAs and GNSs, Landcare, these are absolutely critical elements. And so the stuff that they collect is part of the equation I'm talking about. And again, they have had to carry on without any support at all. That if you talk to them, they will tell you that the money they get for those bread and butter long-term data collection and curation uh, issues hasn't moved in decades. And so they're trying to maintain national databases and collections and it's never been at the forefront. So while you've got MB off there funding whizzy, exciting things here and space and all the rest of it, the stuff is just supposed to be done and, and, and you know, it doesn't receive the, the, the focus it should. So and the Royal Society had a lot to say about this. I had a lot to say about this in the big report I did on environmental research. So again, uh, this is another, uh, another, another piece of the jigsaw. In fact, Bernard, there are four reports and there's a lot of pieces of jigsaw, but it's all about environmental monitoring, environmental research, the way that is that is made available um, for the budget process so governments can spend money sensibly and then the way it's made available to members of parliament so they can hold governments to account. That's the big sweep. Simon Upton, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Pleasure. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.